regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys their careers. My guest today is Gleb Mizanski. Gleb is the CEO and co-founder of Datafo, a data observability platform that helps companies unlock growth through a more effective and reliable use of their analytical data. As a founding member of data teams at Autodesk and Live, as well as the head of product at Phantom Auto, Gleb has built some of the world's largest and most sophisticated data platforms, and he has also developed a tooling to improve productivity and data quality in organizations with hundreds of data users. So Clap, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. Pleasure to be here. So yeah, by way of introduction, uh, I believe you, uh, you did your undergrad degree in economics at the Higher School of Economics in Russia. So can you share briefly about your upbringing as well as your college experience? Sure, yeah. So I grew up in the family of entrepreneurs. After Soviet Union collapsed in the beginning of 1990s, my parents actually were among the first wave of entrepreneurs. And so my dad is a serial founder, so is my mother in their respective domains. And so I grew up very much in the spirit of you know, entrepreneurship and getting things done and seizing the opportunities. And I did choose my undergrad degree to be economics because I actually didn't know what I wanted to do at this point in life, but economics felt like a really multidisciplinary field of study that included math and statistics and a lot of also social sciences and humanities that I felt like would you know maximize my opportunities going forward. And looking back, actually, that turned out to be the right decision because I felt like later on in my data career, the exposure to the economical subjects and statistics really were helpful for me. Mm, I see. Was there any particular like economic subject or any classes you took in, in college that is really, I guess, useful? The obvious one is, you know, math and statistics. So anything we do with data is fundamentally based in math. And even the basic analytics, like when we're doing A-B tests, we have to use the, you know, the statistical analysis when we're running machine learning models topics such as calculus and linear algebra are really helpful. But on a more meta level, if you think about what is it to be data-driven for our organization, right? It's about making decisions based on data. And I think that one of the biggest challenges is even understanding what to track, what is important for business, what is driving business, and understanding what is the even cost of doing analytics, analytics what is the cost of measurements. And so I feel like the economics and microeconomics and things like investment analysis really focus you on understanding the business impacts of things and thinking in terms of ROI. So is it actually worth to run this experiment or is it worth measuring this particular behavior in the users? Like what is the economical reason for us to willing to measure this decision? And I feel that's quite important in analytics in general. Thanks for sharing the story. After finish college, you moved to the U.S. to pursue a master's degree in information system management at Carnegie Mellon University. So why did you choose to pursue this program? And overall, how was your experience at CMU? Yeah, so, you know, as, as I was graduating my undergrad, I had a clear idea that I wanted to go deeper into tech. And I found this interesting program called information systems management. Actually, a number of schools in the U.S. offer it. And CMU looked to be the leader in that space. And what I liked about that program is that it had a lot of hard subject in the, you know, computer science area, like distributed systems and, you know, object-oriented programming and data science and data mining and databases. But it also offered them with a very tight connection to the business world. So you can almost think of that program as a combination of computer science with an MBA. So basically, I would go to a class about 
distributed systems or cloud computing. And then the next class I'd have would be solving Harvard Business School cases. And I think that's a really a good mixture because ultimately in the world of analytics, it's not just about technology. It's also about working with people and structuring the processes and fitting the analytical process in the organization. And so I really like that curriculum and would highly recommend it for anyone who even comes from either tech background or more of economics business background like I did. I think it's a great mixture. Yeah, I really like that phrasing you said, computer science mixed with an MBA. You mentioned you took a bunch of these classes on like programming, right? Just out of curiosity, have you had any exposure to like sort of programming before you do this program? Or if not, then how do you sort of level up just coding skill yeah. for these classes? Yeah, that's a great question. To be honest, I was a complete rookie in programming computer science until my senior year of college. I knew nothing about computer science. And through a friend, I learned about this course called CS50 Introduction to Computer Science offered by Harvard on ADX. So it's a free online course. It turns out to be, I think, the most popular course in Harvard. And it's also taken by about 100,000 people, I think, annually. So it's extremely popular. And it took me from zero, absolute zero knowledge in computer science to a point where I could pursue a master's degree in a tech field fairly confidently. And I did, I'd say, as good as many other classmates who actually did you know, computer science and undergrad. So I would say this is probably one of the most impactful courses in my life that I've taken throughout my entire education path and uh, probably the best use of time that I put in, in the education. So highly, highly recommend. Thanks for that recommendation. During your master's degree, you also spent a summer as a business analyst intern at Autodesk. So what project that you contributed to during that internship? Yeah, so that was actually a really interesting internship. So Autodesk is a very successful enterprise software company that builds AutoCAD, Maya, and lots of software for creatives who are making movies and architecture. But at that time, that was 2014 they wanted to tap into the consumer space. And so they've acquired a big portfolio of consumer apps focused on creativity, including Instructables, which is a website for instructions and apps for 3D modeling for kids and social cam, which is like a video social network. So lots of different creative apps. And they had very limited visibility into what was going on in terms of the users and dynamics in those apps. So the leadership actually didn't understand the performance of that entire portfolio. And so when I came as an intern, my task was to basically centralize analytics from all of these apps into one place so that everyone could have a clear idea of the performance, the user behavior. And essentially, my entire project was the automation of ETL pipeline as they would say today. And uh, it basically took them from like 20 hours of work a week to pull this data together to about half an hour of work with the automation part. Sounds like a very impactful output of a, like a summer internship experience, right? And actually, you know, after grad school, you accept a full-time product manager role at Autodesk. Uh, during your time there, you build from scratch and unify analytical portal for consumer products. And also you help architect the development of data models and ETL pipelines. Could you mind sort of going over some of the relevant context and the challenges associated with these projects? Yeah, so basically what I built over the summer was actually a desktop app. And you might think, why would anyone build desktop app for you know data pipelines? But that probably because I was really not yet fully aware of the landscape of analytical stacks at the time. So I built what I could build. So when I came full-time, I actually re-architected that into a cloud-based product using you know, a proper ETL orchestrator, Luigi, which is an open source project by Spotify. And I moved all the data to Amazon Redshift, the cloud database. So it was actually much more sustainable and scalable process. The particularly interesting project back then was introducing a BI tool. So at that point, that division of the company, Autodesk, didn't really have any kind of standard BI tool that would allow a large number of people to see analytics and see dashboards. And so we introduced Looker, which at the time was still you know, an emerging product. Like right now, it's you know, a very big enterprise company that recently was acquired by Google. But at that time, it was fairly novel. 
And what was interesting is that I was pretty much a one-man analytical team, and I was able to roll out Looker to our organization with over 100 people. And not because I was you know, particularly smart, but I think because the product Looker was actually really well architected to provide self-service analytics for the end users. So that was a fairly successful project. I'm just curious when you introduce like a new product for the rest of the organization, I believe Autodesk is, is quite big, right? Is there any resistance in terms of adoption from the people's perspective? And, and how do you like sort of convince your teammates or even your manager to adopt a new tool like that? Yeah, that's a very good question. So typically, I imagine that in a company like Autodesk, that would be a much slower process. But at that time, it happened that the division which I was part of was moving really quickly. And because I was essentially the one-man data shop, I was given full uh, autonomy in making the technical decisions, which was both the good and the bad thing, but turned out mostly good. So I was able to roll it out, basically getting buy-in really quickly. And because they went from having disparate spreadsheets flying around to having a centralized BI tool. So everyone was really happy and on board. And then actually that Looker solution was adopted by the larger part of the company because they seen the, you know, the success case for the consumer group division. Yes. Having the quick wins really demonstrate yeah. value prop upfront. You spend roughly about a year in Autodesk and that grow, and then you then moved to Lyft, which I guess in 2016 is still kind of emerging startup at the time. And initially you joined us in a hybrid data science in that engineering role. And some of the projects you work on include predicting driver behaviors, redesigning a petabyte scale data warehouse and building an automated real-time metric monitoring platform. So can you provide a couple of anecdotes on some of the projects that contributed a high impact to Lyft's business? Yeah, so that was a very interesting time to join Lyft. And I had multiple opportunities which company to join. And I specifically chose Lyft because in my previous role at Autodesk, I've seen that you know data is clearly impactful, but the types of decisions that people would make based on that were actually quite high level. And I saw that the organization didn't, at the time, like didn't really leave live by, I would say, making data-driven decisions. So it was informative, but it wasn't really critical to the success of the company. It was more about, you know, building good user experiences and enhancing the user's creativity. And so I was deliberately seeking a place where data would be basically number one priority for the entire company. And Lyft at that time was at a high growth stage. So they were at, I think, 600 employees at the time and growing really, really quickly and, and catching up with Uber. And so when I joined the team, it was completely another story. So the entire company essentially ran off dashboards and there were entire me- executive meetings scheduled around reviewing a given dashboard and making you know million dollar worth allocations in terms of you know, stimulating drivers or giving promotions to passengers and how to balance the markets. And that was a really, really challenging problem for the data team. And so I came in on board as I think analyst number 13. And after almost three years, when I left Lyft, uh, the company was at, I think, 4,600 people. So grew over, you know, seven times. The data team itself was over 250 people. So it was a tremendous, tremendous growth. And in terms of the highlights of the project, so I actually started as, you know, an individual contributor working on whatever were the highest priority projects, you know, I would be throwing at. And that ranged from building forecasting models to help city managers understand uh, markets better and forecast their metrics and understanding things like what will happen on July 4th? Are people still going to take rides? Are drivers still going to, you know, go out and drive? And if not, how do we stimulate them to do so so we can keep the market in balance? Building lots of different you know, reporting for execs and for product managers. But every time I actually did a project hands-on, I was really frustrated with the productivity that I had because it took me a long time to you know, build an ETL or build a machine learning model. And so I saw a lot of friction in the workflow itself. And so I naturally drifted to actually building tools at the company for the data teams to make people more productive. And that actually became the emphasis of my role at Lyft. So I became first, you know, a data engineer focused specifically on building tools and eventually product manager who directed, you know, a group of over 10 engineers, specifically working on things like productivity for data engineers and data scientists. One example of that 
would be anomaly detection. So at Lyft, we would have tens of thousands of metrics, right? Because if, if you think about KPIs, there are probably about 20 KPIs important for each market, you know, user acquisition, how many passengers, how many drivers you have daily, what is the utilization of drivers, like the time that they are with a passenger versus the total time they're with the app. And then if you multiply that by the number of cities where Lyft is servicing, you basically get tens of thousands of these metrics. Obviously, you don't have that many people to watch these metrics daily. And it's very important to know when these metrics are off because that means that you're either losing passengers or you're not paying drivers enough. And that is bad for the overall user experience and the company. And so what we build is a system that would actually learn the behavior of the metrics with machine learning. So it would fit time series models and then notify the appropriate stakeholders whenever a metric would go off. Some of the most impactful outcomes of that projects were actually not in the business sense, but in tracking some of the engineering metrics. So we were able to detect certain incidents when a billing system would break and then Lyft would not be charging enough, for example, a certain kind of tax uh, for the passenger and basically losing money at a, big, at a really high rate if that would not be detected early enough. And so because we had the system, we were able to catch these things really early, like basically within minutes after that problem emerged. Yeah, thanks for like providing that really clear cut uh, case study and anomaly detection and, and that emphasis you mentioned about, you know, improving productivity of their engineers mm-hmm. and allow them to solve more incidents and, and be happy at their job. That's definitely an important emphasis. And we're just going to talk a little bit about uh, later on in our chat. We kind of briefly uh, alluded to it, but, you know, in the later part of your tenure with Leap, you assume uh, product management responsibility and leading multiple cross-functional teams of engineers and sort of growing the data organization significantly, as you already mentioned, from almost six times, as you mentioned, right? You know, what were some of the valuable leadership and hiring lessons that you absorbed during this period? At Lyft, so I think that the number one lesson is that in a high growth environment, the opportunity to make impact is limitless. And so you should always ask your question, you know, what is the most impactful thing that I can work on? you should work with your leadership and and managers and sort of explore what are the strengths that you can apply to help grow the company. A lot of these opportunities are actually unknown to the leadership at the, you know, at the given time. And if you see them, it's almost like entrepreneurship, right? So when I joined Lyft, I actually joined as a data analyst, but I very quickly realized that the entire analytics team would spend unreasonable amount of hours sort of developing and testing ETL pipelines. So I built a command line tool that made this process much easier in the realm of what DBT does today. And that was tremendously impactful, though it was a simple tool to the analytics team, but no one actually would expect me to do so because I was a data analyst and not you know, a software engineer. So I think that when you're in a high growth environment, just don't be afraid to explore and focus on the high impact projects and try to you know, absorb everything in the organization because you'll see the opportunities to help the company grow that could be out, even outside of your role description. Yeah, I see. Fascinating. Out of my personal curiosity, but we mainly work within data teams. Have you ever had any opportunity to sort of collaborate with uh, some of the other division within Lyft, like design or operation or you know, some of the other? Yeah. Things? Well, the interesting thing is if you're working in a really data-driven company like Lyft, then as an analyst, you will get exposed to probably all areas of the organization. So over the course of my career there, I got to work really closely with finance, operations, product management, engineering, you know, legal team, for example, doing a lot of risk investigations and uh, analysis for the legal parts. And I think in general, the benefits of working in the data space and analytics is that your role is really critical to the organization. And so you get to learn a lot because you can empower so many different roles within the company. And it's a really great place to start your career as well because you can learn what everyone else is doing. You can help them make decisions and then you can switch to other roles because you will you know, learn from within what, what it's like and what kind of questions they're asking. Yeah, those are very, very solid points. After about two and a half years of Lyft, you uh, moved to Phantom Auto for a product management position in which you led the development of teleoperation products for autonomous vehicles over cellular networks. 
Can you discuss some of the unique challenges of defining a roadmap in the rapidly evolving autonomous vehicles industry? Yeah, so Fendimoto was a seed stage startup at that time uh, when I joined them. And the product is very interesting. It's essentially not providing automation for autonomous vehicles, but it allows autonomous vehicles operators to control those vehicles remotely. For example, let's imagine you know, a delivery robot that brings food around the neighborhood. And almost every company right now in the business of food delivery is working or trying to launch these kind of services. Obviously, automation, as we know, is very challenging and hasn't been solved yet fully. And so there are going to be situations where autonomous vehicles will not be able to run on their own. And so that's why you need the remote operator who could connect and, let's say, help the vehicle across the road or navigate a particularly challenging environment. And so this was actually a, also a very data-driven product because to be able to control autonomous vehicle in an urban environment, you have to really understand the connectivity which is, as we know, is fluctuating, right? So we all complain about the cell reception in the cities and everything, but imagine how to do this reliably when you are essentially controlling a vehicle that actually poses a hazard to the public, right? And you have to do it reliably over unreliable channels. And so we collected a lot of metrics, a lot of time series to really understand the connectivity and map the cities worth of, you know, reception, seller reception data before launching projects. In terms of the, you know, my role as a product manager that I would say was a fairly classical uh, experience of working really closely with customers and our customers have been, you know, leading companies launching autonomous vehicles. So one project that actually is public is Postmates. So they were launching a food delivery service using robots in California. And so we were supporting them with uh, that remote control. And so I worked really closely with their team, defined their expectations, what they needed in terms of tech, in terms of the user experience for the remote operator. And it's very interesting to work on a really novel product like that, because that hasn't been done before, right? And you basically try different things and you work with these operators that are using, you know, Xbox joysticks controlling the robots over remote and you see how they're reacting to the environment, what kind of you know, video issues are affecting their ability to drive, and then you relate this to engineering. So it was really a really interesting experience where you know, a lot of things from data science and product and sort of hardcore video systems engineering came into one. I see. Just curious, you no longer work there, but I still keep up to date with autonomous vehicles industry in general and how to see you know, some of the recent development and excited future in, within the upcoming, say, two or three years or so. Like, what does it look like for EVs? Would they be more commercially available anytime soon? Yeah, I think that that's a really big question that I, I won't pretend that I'm an expert to really answer that or an industry analyst. But, you know, being exposed to that industry and sort of seeing it from within, I'll say that about two, three years ago, we faced a really you know, spike of the autonomous vehicles hype. And there were so many startups popping up claiming that they will solve autonomy for trucks or for cars, uh, you know, within basically a year or two. And that didn't happen because I think now everyone realizes that the challenge is not to get the product 80% there and the truck driving. It's not that hard with today's technology to get a prototype that would, you know, be able to drive itself. What is hard is to get to the reliability that would actually allow that vehicle to move, you know, as safely or even safer than a human driver. And to solve that, you have to solve for a really, really long tail of different edge cases. And that's take, you know, a lot of time, even for companies like Google and Waymo that are years ahead of everyone else. But what I think we will see coming in this, you know, in the next years and already is happening is automation in maybe a less hyped up spaces, not cars, not trucks, but let's say food delivery robots, right? In the environments that are less risky, where we're not talking about a vehicle moving at 50 miles an hour, we're talking about, you know, a small vehicle with, you know, little mass moving at walking speed. So that's something that can be done today fairly reliably, securely, safely for everyone. And that already starts to deliver the impact for, you know, the neighborhoods. And I think, Also automating certain special types of machinery, like, you know, in the mining space or in logistics, where you 
have people working in a high hazard environment. And so removing people from those machines can actually increase everyone's safety. So those, I think, are the areas where autonomy will penetrate first and really make an impact before we see, you know, autonomous taxis around the cities. Yeah, those are very excellent and I suppose potentially cost-effective solution to test out first and see some of the quick wins before the stake are higher. So you work at Autodesk, which is sort of a big organization, and Lyft, which at the time was sort of like a high-growing startup, and, and the Phantom Auto, which is kind of a sister startup, right, which is this very three different stage of working environment. Uh, curiosity, what, what are some of the pros and cons of working at the, these three environments from your experience? What do you lie and, and didn't lie about each? Yeah, I think it's all about trade-offs. I think that when you work at a large company, you see more things you know, around you. You get to interact with more people. You also potentially get better training opportunities because large companies tend to have more infrastructure, more resources to train, and better capacity to sort of formally mentor and, and train someone who starts in their career. Startups and earlier stage companies are the opposite of that. And not to say that you can't learn there, you actually probably will learn maybe even more than you learn in a corporate environment, but it's less predictable, right? And it's a more, I would say, uncertain, more hustling type of environment where you'll be thrown at so many different projects and it's very likely that you will be incredibly inefficient in solving these problems, but you will also learn a lot and likely you'll have to learn on your own. So I think it depends a lot on the person's mindset and sort of their nature in terms of what environment would work best for them to learn. I think the more important thing is not necessarily the type of company or the size of company, but it's the team that you're joining, the people that you're going to be working with, both the colleagues and your management. I'd say that in that, what you're looking for is an environment where you know that you trust your management to know what they're doing. You trust them to actually teach you the best practices and best things because there are so many teams that are either you know positioned in the wrong way or motivated in the wrong way that can actually affect your career. I think that in the data space, especially today, it's also important to look at the types of technologies and solutions and tools and processes that teams are using. Why is that important is because data space, just like software engineering, evolving really quickly And if you join a company that is still using legacy technologies, not for the sake of old for being bad, right? But it's all about productivity, right? One, if the team is using legacy technologies and they're unproductive, they don't have the right tools, you will waste a lot of time instead of actually creating impact, right? You will also potentially miss on certain important principles that and education opportunities that actually position you as a strong candidate for your career. And so I think that is an important factor to take into consideration when you're joining the team. And I think the final one is, what is the role of data team in the organization? Are they there to build you know, dashboards with vanity metrics showing kind of ever increasing number of total users? Or are they actually on a critical path for making critical decisions for business? Because if it's the former, then likely you won't find a lot of satisfaction in your job. If it's latter, then you will quickly find yourself in front of executives and important people that are essentially looking up to you to make decisions. And I think for anyone who is looking to grow, that is an important factor to consider. Absolutely. Those key factors, trust within management, maturity of the tooling and the role of data teams, right? Those are the key factors that you mentioned. Yeah. As we sort of discussed about a startup environment and looking for trends in tooling, Since March of 2020, uh, you have been the co-founder and CEO of Datafo, whose mission is to help companies effectively leverage their data assets while making data engineering and analytics a creative and enjoyable experience. So can you share the story behind the founding of the company? Yeah, absolutely. And I've kind of touched on these topics earlier in my story, right, at Lyft, where, you know, I started working as an analyst, but I was so frustrated with the tools and, and workflows that I started building tools internally. And... That was, I think, a general theme across my entire career is that I feel like analytics becomes increasingly important for companies. And I won't go into much details because I think that's fairly understood fact. 
And so businesses invest a lot in collecting data and storing it and processing, buying you know, lots of databases, processing power, latest BI tools, hiring people. And so a lot of problems that were problems you know, even five years ago, like how do we even store all data that we need currently are solved with you know, solutions like Snowflake and BigQuery. So it's no longer a problem to have petabytes of data and no longer a problem to visualize whatever you want to visualize in your warehouse. But the such abundance of data and the rapid accumulation of data sets and explosion of analytics inside companies created a different set of problems, right? How can we manage this complexity of data? What data we can even trust? How do we find data? And today, most companies that are serious about analytics would have you know, 10 to 20 times more data sets than they have employees. And so that is a really high complexity to navigate for anyone. And that's the kind of one force that's happening. You have increasing chaos. And then on the other hand, businesses are putting more and more demands for analytics and analytical data. So the expectations are that data should be accurate. It should be reliable. It should be available by, let's say, 9 a.m. when people gather and look at the dashboards. And so that puts a lot of pressure on data teams to deliver high quality, reliable data products, right? Be the dashboards, machine learning models or reports without having tools to actually manage that complexity. And so that's what Datafold solves. So we actually provide tools that solve some of the most painful workflows for data practitioners, ranging from you know, how do they test changes to data processing pipelines to how do they find data? How do they understand how each data set looks? How do they understand the quality of the data sets? And if you add up all these friction points, that we can solve that actually ends up with a lot of value and a lot of time saved that essentially allows companies to use data faster and better. Yeah, thanks for sharing that motivation. Just one quick note, you also have a co-founder, Alex Morozov. Can you yeah. talk about like how did you, you know, decide to be, to be co-founders? Yeah, absolutely. Alex and I actually met at Phantom Auto, so the previous company where we both worked. Uh, Alex was a lead engineer working on some of the most I would say hardcore problems in the product related to the transmission of video and how to optimize video according to the changing environment. So he and I worked really closely on a number of projects and we really bonded well. And I consider him probably the best engineer that I've worked with in my career. And I worked with hundred, you know, over hundred engineers so far across all the companies. And we decided that one day we'll, you know, go and start a company together, you know, by the beginning of last year, I already had kind of a vision for the tool that will eventually become Datafold. So we started prototyping it and eventually built a product that was quickly adopted by the data community. And so, yeah, let's dig a bit deeper into some of those three technical problems that the Datafold platform is due to solve. I read your post on Hacker News Lunch, and by then Datafold first tool is called DataDiff, which mm-hmm. helps data developers to quickly verify the change being introduced to the data rise to the data right in their Git workflow, allowing them to catch data incidents before they get to production and at the point when they are easiest to fix. Would you mind sort of explaining the pain points with uh, regression testing and mm-hmm. the benefits of using data diff in uh, final detail? Yeah, absolutely. So the challenges are that all analytics and all machine learning is fundamentally based on some you know, really atomic pieces of data, like events that are describing certain actions happening in the system, like user clicked a button, user viewed the page, or some data sets can be coming from, let's say, dumps of production databases that are powering the backends of applications or from vendors. So you're dealing with a lot of raw data that is you know, highly noisy and not ideal and all disparate. And then what companies are doing is that they are putting a lot of transformations, a lot of steps that take that raw data, combine it, merge, group, clean, eventually to make it usable for the end users, right? To plot on dashboards or to feed into machine learning. And to all these transformations, they contain a lot of business logic. And by business logic, we mean the rules, right? So, you know, filter that out, join this thing on that condition, rename that column, you know, apply this formula. And given the complexity of all that business logic in the modern data pipelines, making changes to that is highly error prone because there's a lot of complexity and 
not enough visibility into how the changes you're making to the source code, let's say SQL scripts or you know Python scripts, how these changes are impacting the produced data. To make things harder, you can change thing you know in one step of a pipeline, and that can have completely unexpected repercussions at the end of the pipeline because there will be you know four or five steps applied after that. And today, this kind of testing, the change management testing takes a lot of time for data professionals. And at large companies where you know the stakes of making decisions or reporting wrong numbers are really high, especially you know they have to report those numbers to you know public if they're a public company. Data engineers can spend up to a week of manual work just to test one simple change, right? And that is a really, really bad use of their time, right? It's not a creative process. They're simply making sure that they didn't do the wrong thing. And so what we did with DataDiff is essentially created a really visual way, an easy way for data developers to see how a change in the recipes of data transformations affect the data which is produced, both in terms of statistics, like how do your distributions change? Does your average or median or ranges or percent of null values change? And allowing you to even drill to specific rows and values, basically seeing, okay, so if I change this code, what is, how does my customer profile change in this table? And that is something that turned out to be very, you know, saving a lot of time for the end users and also allowing them to move with higher confidence. So basically it saves time and also reduces the probability of breaking something for the business, which is quite important. So like Benpo is just even to make like a very simple change, take a lot of time yeah. and hopefully that is to keep visibility. For exactly. The, yeah. For the engineers to tr- track those the differences. As I dig around a bit about the, on the website of Datafoe, yeah, it seems like data monitoring is another features of companies uh, data observability platform. And uh, it, it can turn any SQL query into a smart alert in one click. Well, first of all, how has uh, data monitoring traditionally been done in uh, both small and large enterprises? And secondly, how does Datafo's monitoring uh, offering address some of that shortcomings? I think data monitoring is something that teams have naturally been doing manually, right? And uh, let's say if I'm a data engineer and I own a particular set of tables that are, let's say, used by some executive facing dashboards or in dashboards for product managers, then I would probably go and check maybe every day, maybe a couple of times a day, some kind of dashboards, run a few queries just to see that is everything fine? Did the data actually land? Was it computed? Are there any anomalies? And that is also a very daunting process, right? I'm not using this time to create new things. I'm actually just, you know, looking at over and over the same things just to make sure that they are still in place or still correct. And so one thing that we've seen users doing is basically scheduling, like take some sort of report, like a BI report, and then scheduling a regular sort of email with that report to them so that, you know, every day they would get an email, they would open it, they would look whether the metric looks okay or not. And again, this is a very clunky process. So what we've done with metric monitoring is we created an easy way to define any metric. For example, simplest example would be how many rows does a table containing users get a day, right? New rows. And we want this number to be normal. The problem is that normal is also a very vague definition because you may have more users registering on Monday than on Sunday. And that has a lot of fluctuations. So how do you even understand what normal is? So we made a really simple workflow where a data user can essentially define this metric using SQL, which is a very common you know, language for expressing analytics. And then uh, we plot a time series and we fit a machine learning model that actually learns the behavior of this metric and alerts the user whenever the metric is outside of predicted intervals. And even if there was a lot of fluctuations and you know day of the week or hour of the day effects, we still take it all into account. So basically the user can focus on creative tasks and then have DataFold monitor the data for them. I see, automated process monitoring metric. Yeah. I think you mentioned a bit earlier when during your time at Leaf, you also have to build a bunch of time series models mm-hmm. for like forecasting stuff, right? Is this some kind of similar algorithms? Yeah, I'd say that is a very similar workflow and similar idea. Yep. Data warehouse is another topic that I'd love to discuss. 
Mm-hmm. You have written a couple of blog posts about the six dimension for evaluating a data well solution and uh, the three ways to be wrong about open source data warehousing software. And actually, you recommend BigQuery and Snowflake as the best data warehousing options in the market at the moment. Can you double click on that? You know, over the past five years, we've seen a really big explosion in different warehousing options, different architectures. And there are many, many ways that you can look at a given warehousing solution. And so the kind of opinions that I express are basically, I would say, quite general. So I try to make a framework, propose a framework that would be applicable to the majority of analytical use cases, but I don't expect that to be applicable to everyone. So there are potentially other considerations. But I think in general, the challenge is that, you know, data teams are facing a lot of noise from vendors. And there's also a lot of kind of legacy ideas of what data warehouse should be. There are also sort of ideas that, you know, data warehouse should be very fast, for example, you know, we want fast queries, we want data to be shown, you know, in sub-second data intervals. And I think that it's really hard to make a good decision without really understanding all the important aspects altogether, because it's all about trade-offs. There is no perfect warehouse for anything, right? It's all about balancing, let's say, speed of queries versus the scalability, like how much data you can fit in or the cost of running it versus the cost of processing data. And some of the important dimensions, I think, that have historically been neglected by many teams deciding on the solution is user experience. So there are certain solutions for warehousing and processing data that can be very powerful, but they expose complexity to the end user, basically forcing the user to think about more aspects like, does your data have a skew or What about the memory that is being allocated to process this query, right? Or having a long time to debug an error, right? Also is a part of user experience. And I think that what what makes, for example, BigQuery and Snowflake, one of the biggest advantages of these solutions is that they take all that complexity from the user. So basically as a user of these warehousing technologies, you don't have to think about, you know, query debugging or what might have failed in the middle they basically hide all the complexity for you. And I think another sort of counterintuitive thing is that many teams try to go for open source solutions because they are afraid of vendor lock-in or because they think that vendor solutions like or closed source products end up being more expensive. And I think it can be true if the only cost that you're factoring in is you know, the cost of processing a given size of data, like what does it cost to process gigabyte of data using open source solution like Presto versus BigQuery? Indeed, Presto may be cheaper, but what many teams are failing to factor in is the total cost of ownership. So if you are going to run a cluster you know, for data processing, which is open source yourself in-house, that requires a lot of work to even spin it up, set it up, configure it, let alone to maintain it with high enough availability that the cost of the labor you know, may very quickly surpass any kind of economies that you get from sort of running open source. So I would say nothing comes for free. And I think that today for most companies, it doesn't make sense to you know, go for open source unless they know exactly the reasons why they want it because data processing technologies are commodities. So you can buy them off the market And if you want to spend engineering time, better spend it to building your actual product rather than running your warehouse. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, that's a classic view versus buy trade-offs. And you actually also wrote a blog post about why to buy, not to view. And I'll be sure to include that in show notes so people can read it and understand some of the the, the points that you kind of mentioned just so. And actually, as as we kind of talk about this topic of data warehouse, I'm very curious to kind of probe your thoughts on this notion of data lakehouse, which is essentially that combination between uh, data warehouse and data lake, which seems to like come into prominent quite recently with tools like data lake from Databricks. So I'm, I'm just curious, what, what are your thoughts on that and how do you see, will data warehouse still stay the same or is it still going to be popular in, in the coming few years or so? Yeah, I, th- I think that the term data lake and data warehouse are a little bit overloaded. And so we have to kind of be clear in when we speak about them, what exactly we mean. So it seems like, and I'll just offer a definition, right? That data lake is an architecture where you would have your data stored 
in uh, some sort of blob storage, like you know Google Cloud Storage or S3 in some sort of open source data format like Parquet, that then you can process and access with different systems like with Apache Spark or with Presto or other, other systems and sort of have completely different systems access these files and process them. And data Warehouse traditionally has been like a system where data is stored kind of in a proprietary format on the sort of same service that are doing compute. And I think that that definition is now relaxed. For example, it's hard to say whether Snowflake is a data lake or a data warehouse because essentially they are storing data on, you know, in a cloud format, but it's not accessible by other systems. And I think that like if you're talking about, you know, Snowflake BigQuery versus Databricks, the example that you gave, it's all depends on what are your primary use cases, because if your primary use cases is doing typical analytics and warehousing, and occasionally you want to do some machine learning with Spark, then you might as well, you know, store your data in a warehouse that gives you the best user experience, like let's say Snowflake. And then systems like Databricks actually have very good connectivity with systems like Snowflake. So if your data scientist needs to pull some data set in Spark, they can do it like in one line of code. So that is one approach, right? You don't have to choose one or the other, you can use both. But I think that like the classical data lakes of sort of open source data formats living, you know, separate from the compute layer, they are oftentimes uh, prone to the same challenges like with any open source technologies where it's hard to get them work reliably and with great user experience because your data team will need to start worry about you know, the maintenance of those files and how they are accessed and whether someone erases them or whether they are like in, left in some kind of corrupt state. And there's a lot of operations that actually might be needed to keep a data lake in a good shape. That is why my kind of general recommendation to data teams is to try to choose a system that gives you data warehousing experience out of the box as much as possible, allowing you to focus on the actual value add activities. And as we currently in the discussion of choosing tools for modern teams and kind of stepping away from very specific components, uh, one of your thoughts about the modern modern analytics stack. Uh, and you wrote a blog post last year where you basically deconstruct the analytical infrastructure into nine different steps that follow the data value chain, including specification, instrumentation, collection, integration, warehousing, transformation, quality assurance, discovery, and analysis. So in your opinion, what steps along this chain are still underinvested and challenging for data practitioners? Um, very good question. So I, I think one area which I think we will see more things happening in the next two years is BI, because traditionally the tools that we've seen in that space were optimizing for sort of how to create dashboards you know, in the easiest way, or how to also enable data users kind of explore data without needing to type SQL. And for example, Looker and Tableau with different strengths are really great products for that, right? But I think what we start seeing as gaps in the BI tools is the lack of any kind of intelligence, right? So ultimately we realize that it's not enough to show a dashboard to a stakeholder what people are ultimately interested in is not just the data, the metric has moved, like we increased our sales by 10%, but the question of why, right? What was the main driver behind that increase? And sometimes it's not enough to just kind of dissect this by city or by product. Sometimes we have to look at, you know, did the sales increase because of the increase in conversion rate on our website, right? And these kind of insights are currently not well supported by the modern BI tools. And we see certain players coming in, in right now that are offering these kind of deep dives in an automated fashion, helping understand what is the driver behind the metric movements. But these kind of insights right now are sort of disconnected from the classic world of kind of dashboards for everyone. And I see, I think that we will see some hybrid solutions where we not only will be able to visualize things, but also you know, see the why behind. And I think the second area that I'm really excited about in the modern data stack is the data observability and quality management. So this is what essentially the area that Datafold falls into. And it's sort of not a step in a value chain, but rather I would say a like a vertical 
component that actually integrates with every single step and provides you with a complete view of the data alongside that value chain, right? All the way from instrumentation and getting it into your warehouse, all the way to BI tools and how users use it. So having visibility into that data flow, understanding when things break, why they break, what's going wrong, be able to trace incidents. So that's the area that I think will be really impactful for data teams to be able to move faster and with um, higher confidence. A lot of things that we are very excited about building. Yeah, transitioning from the, the what to the why. You mentioned monitoring to, to observability, right? And the concept and understanding the root cause and figuring, the, you know, how to fix them. It seems like the, what do you propose for moving forward for the tooling ecosystem? A key strategy of DataFo's product roadmap is to closely integrate and exchange data with some of the other systems that form the core modern analytics stack. And you kind of already mentioned just so, and you know, it is a new vertical that integrated with HFT's components within the value chain. For, for example, recently, DATFO has been integrated with DBT, right? So what are some of the other integration that your team is working on in 2021? We actually are working with a number of players in the space. And DBT is one that we've invested a lot in because I think that the vision behind DBT is to enable data users with a reliable framework to process data, right? And bring in the best practices from software engineering into the data engineering or analytics engineering, as they call it. And that really closely aligns with how we see the field evolving as well. Our general strategy is to integrate with all components of the data stack, right? So with the BI tools like Looker, Mode, Tableau, with some of the very upstream technologies that are, let's say, helping teams manage the ingest of data or the instrumentation of data that we have in the beginning of the value chain so that um, they can also get full visibility into how that data is used. So overall, we will have a large number integration coming out, I think, in the next six months. So stay tuned. Talking about just sort of being a, a good player in the ecosystem in order to actively engage with the data community, you have been hosting data quality meetups. So what are some of the common trends to tackle data quality challenges that you have observed from hosting these sessions? In general, I feel that the topic of data quality has been largely underexplored and there are much more questions than answers in this field. And you know, we see our job is to facilitate the discussion so that everyone can express their challenges and share some best practices. I think that the trend that I've noticed from both the lightning talks we have given, you know, by the participants and just the final discussions with some of the data team leaders is that the data quality becomes increasingly important on the data teams and roadmaps and even, you know, brought up to organizational level OKRs or KPIs, you know, that becomes really significant. And the teams are paying increased attention to the processes. So basically, how do the data teams ship changes, right? So how they change, let's say, even dashboards. So before that could be, you know, a very ad hoc process where someone would make a change and, you know, either tell someone or not tell someone, but now we are seeing that some of the best practices from software engineering, such as continuous integration, automatic testing, code reviews, are now propagating into the data world because data products are gaining, you know, same if not more importance than software products within the companies. Bringing some of these component, a lot of the learning from engineering and apply that to data. This sounds like some of the trends you observe. And I also be sure to include the link to future session. It seems like you organize like every month or so for this meetup, right? Every couple of months, yes. Got it. Okay, be sure to put that shows of you inside of it. Let's take off your data head and put on your founder head. Datafo went through the YC incubator in summer 2020. So what were some of the most valuable lessons that you've learned as a founder from this experience? Yeah, I think that in general, Y Combinator provides a really great framework of thinking about your business and they force you to answer for yourself for the most part really you know uncomfortable questions like how do you know people actually like what you're building do you have evidence for that and if they're not liking it then are there other people that are having this problem and if you can't find any maybe you're solving the wrong problem and what is the problem that actually people care about 
And they do a really great job of forcing you through that framework so that by answering those questions, you actually propel your business and you avoid wasting time and making bad decisions. So that I think was the most helpful for me as a first time founder. The second thing, which is great about the Y Combinator is the community. So I feel there are very few investment institutions where when you get you know, them as, as an investor, you actually become part of the very vibrant and active and supportive community. So I actually made great friends through the community. I got customers and got many questions answered and just learned a lot in terms of what you know, founders from the previous batches and previous generations have done and what worked for them. That's been super helpful for me and for the company in general. Yes, yeah, thanks for sharing that experience. Just uh, double click a bit on that fighting customer aspect, right? So, you know, fighting early adopters is uh, notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. What were some of the challenges that you had to overcome in order to cross that chasm? Well, I think that there are a couple of challenges. One, what we offered as a first product, which is data diff, at the time when we just started offering it was counterintuitive to many people. And, you know, for many teams, they just didn't realize, you know, how to use it in the workflow. And we didn't know exactly how to market it or how to explain it. But when you from personal experience, you know, at Lyft, that actually would be very useful. And so eventually we stumbled upon a few teams that immediately understood the value and like rolled it out to their entire data team of 50. And that was just a matter of speaking with, you know, many people listening to what they're saying, trying to make your narrative and your pitch better and eventually finding, you know, the audience with these clicks. The second challenge was that for modern data tools, right now an important consideration is security and privacy controls. Because unlike, you know, five years ago, companies will not plug in their database credentials to random tool because they're risking exposing very sensitive, potentially regulated data, which can be really, very, very disastrous for the business. And so as part of the process, as an early stage company, we had to do various things from, you know, filling out 300 question long surveys about security from certain customers to finding a way to deploy our product in their cloud environment so that the data never leaves that environment, which actually simplified lots of things for us in the customer acquisition process. And luckily today, it's actually not that hard to do if you architect your product in the right way. I see, yeah. So like perfecting your pitch to uh, prospects and yeah. being mindful of these security privacy challenges. One other thing that I'm very curious about is in terms of hiring people. Hiring is you know, a very critical responsibility of early stage startup founder. And obviously like, you have some experience hiring back in your previous job, you know, especially at Leaf and Infantum Model, but what were some of the lessons you learned, you know, in order to attract the right people who are excited about the mission of Datafoe? Yeah, so hiring is very hard. And I think what has worked for us so far is a combination of the network that we've built over the years of working in the industry and just having good working relationships with people from previous companies, as well as even, you know, cold emails and outreach. So I found lots of people in the data community who were also excited about building tools or improving processes. And so for them, the opportunity to work at Datafold wasn't just about, you know, software engineering, it was also about solving the problems that they care about. And I think that for any startup, I think outreaching to people that are likely to identify with your mission and not just be good engineers probably would be the most effective user of your time because at a very early stage, your product likely will not make sense to anyone but the people who actually experience the problems. And those are people who are both passionate about the mission and also likely also have ideas and, and have thought about the problem space. So that was our most effective hiring channel. Makes a lot of sense. And then finally, Datafoe raised a seed round led by a new enterprise associate ventures last November. What fundraising advice would you give for founders who are seeking the right investors for the companies? Wow. Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a, you know, a question which warrants its own podcast. And I don't think I'm the most informed here. But in general, I'd say that 
a few things I learned, which were counter counterintuitive to me before I did fundraising, even though I read about them, but I'll try to overemphasize them because they weren't clear to me. One, fundraising is a full-time activity that you should go, well, basically you dedicate, let's say two weeks or a month or two months doing just that. And you go, you know, heads first into it and you try to focus just on that, take as many meetings as possible, get as many options as you can in terms of investor offers, then decide. It doesn't work like, you know, chatting with investors occasionally because every conversation with investors is a pitch. And so you're basically, by doing that, you can put yourself in a disadvantageous position also because you may not be ready to chat to investors. So make sure you focus on that. I think the second part is, that I learned is that there is overabundance of capital in general in the industry right now that is looking for good ideas and good teams. And so if you have the right signals, like you have industry domain expertise, you have product, you have proven traction, you have a vision, you can articulate that you shouldn't have problems raising. It will be still hard, but you'll be able to find money but you'll need to make sure that you are, you know, have all the things in check to actually present your idea and your company in a coherent way. And it took me quite a few meetings to figure out exactly what I was doing wrong during the fundraising process before kind of I understood what clicks with investors. And, you know, the third thing I'll, I'll say is that I'm no expert in fundraising. I've, I've only really done it once in my life, the seed fundraise. And it was, I think, quite successful for us overall. But if you actually want to learn this topic, I would really recommend watching YC videos on YouTube. And I would also recommend reading Paul Graham's essays. So paulgram.com, he's, for those who don't know him, he is the original founder of Y Combinator. Also, you know, an amazing computer scientist and thinker and essayist. So he provides a lot of wisdom in a very succinct way. And that's probably the best way to learn both about startup as an experience in the belt fundraising. Yeah, that's a very well detailed and full flesh out piece of advice. And I'll be sure to yeah, include some of those videos from YC and uh, on BG as well into the show notes. Yeah. Um, glad for this for our conversation. I want to move into the final closing segment, which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data engineering universe whose work you admire. Max Bushman. He is outside the superstar of data open source. He is a creator of Apache Airflow and, and Apache Superset, both products incredibly impactful for the data community. And also he provided a lot of thought leadership for you know, many teams and startups into how to do data engineering. I'd say Tobias Macy, he runs the data engineering podcast, a very good place to learn about how data teams are solving things and also about the cool vendors that are coming up. And I just really admire his work in popularizing data in general. And number three, that's a very good question. Number three is actually a book that I recommend that everyone who does data reads. And the book is called How to Measure Anything. So it talks about two things. One why do you want to measure things and how you should approach measuring them? Because the counterintuitive thing is you can pretty much come up with a way to measure things and, you know, understand the user behavior, but not all the things actually are worth it. So it provides you a really good framework into thinking of how you come up with metrics, what those metrics should be and how to find good answers from data, even if you don't have, good data, right? By carefully applying statistics and using some rules of thumb. So really, really good book for anyone interested in the topics of data science and analytics. Yeah, so that actually can answer my second question. My second question was like, what is one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate a better data-driven mindset? Do you have any extra gems that is sort of underrated that you would recommend? Yeah, there's another good book that is actually my table book. It's called Lean Analytics. It's by mm. uh, Alistair Kroll and, and Benjamin Yoskovitz. Yeah. How to measure anything is like a Bible of analytics and Lean Analytics is more of a, you know, short read. And what it does is it breaks down analytical frameworks for different kinds of businesses. For example, if you're SaaS, what are the metrics you should really care about that kind of propel your growth? If you're 
let's say, freemium software? What are the metrics that are important to you? And it's just a really cool framework that you can just take and, and run with. Also helpful for fundraising, right? Because when you're, especially in the later rounds, you want to focus on the right story and the right metrics for the investors. Perfect. And then uh, lastly, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage data engineers on Twitter. What would you tweet about? Yeah, so I'd say that it may be longer than a tweet, but I'll try to <laughs> explain it in a couple of sentences. I think that data domain is changing really fast. And it's really hard to kind of learn the latest skills and stay relevant unless you have the right fundamentals. And so I'd say my tweet would be build the fundamentals, right? So if you're not very strong in math and statistics, find courses just to get the basics. And you can learn from, you know, Coursera, ADX, you can find courses that are digestible and fun and give you those basics. If you're not familiar with programming, if you don't have a formal computer science education, you know, take CS50, learn the fundamentals, because that will allow you to learn any kind of programming tech, any kind of framework really easily. Without the fundamentals, it's really hard to stay relevant long-term with your skills. With the right fundamentals, you'll crush it. Yeah, perfect. I think that's, that's a brilliant way to end a conversation. So Grab, I really enjoy kind of learning about your background in economics. How do you move to the US studying information system management at CMU, some of your work at Autodesk, Lyft, and Phantom Auto, building out platform projects and growing data teams over there. Your backstory for finding Dataflow, some of the interesting product in data observed platform that you guys are currently building, various opinions in terms of the more analytics stack and state of data quality, as well as some of the hard-earned lessons you learn as a father, finding new customers, hiring the right employees and fundraising from the right investors. So I'll be sure to include everything in the show notes so this can have a chance to you know, engage and, and learn more about some of the work that you and, and the Dataflow team is doing to help companies unlock the grow uh, up there and the core data. So yeah, Grab, I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you, James. It was great. Thank you so much for having me and have a great weekend as well. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.